uh, welcome Keith Elk from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Uh, thank you, Dick. My name is Keith. I am an alcoholic. I uh, am privileged to live in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and to be a member of the uh, the little group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, we meet on Monday night uh, at uh, at Aaron Lakes Baptist Church, and it's a step study meeting. And uh, if you're ever in Fayetteville on Monday night, please come and see us. Uh, we owe that meeting to someone who now lives in your state, a man named Dan F., who, uh, with his wife, began that meeting in their living room some 12 or 13 years ago. And I didn't know them. Uh, I was, hadn't yet moved to, to Fayetteville then, but, uh, but they're uh, certainly still loved by some of the members of that group who, who began with them. And uh, we still have Dan's uh, 12 and 12, which we read from at every meeting. Uh, he left it for us. And I'm sort of, uh, sort of feeling uh, very, very grateful that, uh, that I'm here this weekend. Uh, I'm grateful to be speaking to you now. Um, I'm a graduate of Georgetown University, and they're playing pit right now. And, uh, and I have a feeling that I'm going to be a lot more serene here with you than watching them. So uh, I'm also grateful to the committee for, for uh, inviting me. Uh, it's been a pretty uh, emotional time for me since I got here. Getting here is emotional. Uh, I never uh, on more airplanes in my life, and I just live, you know, a little ways from here. And uh, and they find very unique ways of getting you here. And uh, and I, I'm grateful to the committee for sending Dick over to uh, to uh, find me and, and get me here. And I'm I'm grateful to Alanon for sending Linda to get Dick and I here. Uh, <laughs> She is issuing instructions the whole time, and uh, it's, it's, it's almost like being married. It's just great. Uh, I uh, uh, had a had a pause for thought this morning. I got up in uh, in this beautiful room. My goodness, I'm up on the seventh floor, which means getting her on the elevator is a trick. I tell you, that's something. Uh, uh, if you that's a third step elevator. Uh, if you don't take your third step before you get on it, you'll take it before you get off. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I was on it yesterday when it broke and went to the basement, and we all had to walk up. It was really nice. Um, but uh, but you know that room's so big. I I have nine brothers and sisters, and and we grew up in a house that was smaller than that room. Uh, I felt guilty. It's so big. Uh, I know there's something wrong. I just keep looking around and listening for people. And uh, unbelievable, two television sets. My goodness, I, I, uh, I remember we didn't have one, and now I've got two. And and I'm really uh, kind of touched about being here because when I looked out the uh, the uh, window this morning, I saw the Ohio River, and uh, I grew up north of here in a place called Martin's Ferry, Ohio. And, uh, and used to look out of my window and see the Ohio River. And I, I was uh, struck today as I was uh, praying this morning and reading and uh, writing a little bit. I was struck by, uh, by what's happened to me in these years and, uh, and what a privilege it is to be here at the 37th um, state convention in Kentucky. Uh, you, you began this convention before I was born. I'll try to be a little more honest with the rest of my talk. Uh, uh, 
Uh, I had my last drink on uh, May the 13th, 1973, and that was a vintage year. And I, I, I see a friend of mine who who also got sober in 1973. And when I was up in Tennessee, we celebrated, over in Baghdad, we celebrated that fact together. Um, I was in Baghdad earlier this year, and I, I'm, I'm real glad you got put the fires out. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, but the whole state was on fire. Um, I was a little nervous about it. I, I kept my bag packed. I wasn't sure what was going to go on. And uh, the other speaker was from California, and he's used to that. Uh, but I wasn't. Over in North Carolina, we just don't have fires like that. Really grateful to be here. I, we're supposed to tell a little bit about uh, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, I, I don't know what I can add to uh, to what's been said. I, I've enjoyed the other speakers so very much. Uh, you know, they've, they've been sober so doggone long, and I'm kind of new at all this stuff, but uh, kind of new at sobriety. I was talking to my sponsor last week, last Saturday, as a matter of fact. I called him up. I'm doing some more inventorying. I've... Uh, begun an annulment procedure in my church and uh, with a marriage that uh, that I don't remember a whole lot about and uh, and I wanted to uh, there's something about being sober that and working the steps that causes a, a sense in me of propriety I, I I'm getting the sense that I want to fit in and I want to do things right and uh, and one of those things is to make peace with the church I love and the church that loved me and uh, and I was writing this a lot of this material out, and uh, and I became a little frightened at uh, at how uh, ill a human being can be. And uh, I called my sponsor, Tom I. Some of you know Tom. And uh, and I said to him, I said, Tom, uh, am I all right? And he said, Yeah, yeah, you're all right. He said, uh, Your problem is you're real new at this. And I said, Thank you. And uh, and I like that. I like that sense of being new at this. Uh, I really am spiritually new at this. I, when I first came in, I thought being sober about 15 years was a was a long time, and I'm I'm really beginning to understand that it really isn't. That uh, uh, knowing and walking with God is such a long term proposition, and, and I'm so very very new at it, and so privileged to have such good teachers. I had my first drink when I was five years old. Uh, I thought it was an eventful uh, situation. I, I had it at home with my father, who was not an alcoholic, and my brother, Denny. And my mother was out. I had nine brothers and sisters, as I told you. My mother was out. I don't know if she's having a baby or to bingo or something. And, uh, and uh, uh, we, we used to settle around the kitchen table, and that's where most of our living went on. And... Uh, and my father had some beer. We rarely had alcohol around the house, but he had some beer in the refrigerator, and he, he got out three bottles of beer, and he gave one to my brother Denny and one to myself, and, and, and he drank one. And I guess he wanted to see what it would be like to see two little kids have a beer. And um, he gave us little jelly glasses, you know, the kind with the cartoon characters on them. And um, mine had Superman on it. I don't know if that's significant or not, but, uh, but you know, I... Uh, I, I drank my beer, and I didn't notice anything different. My brother Denny's four years old, and, and I looked across the table, and Denny's sliding down out of the chair, and uh, he began to roll around under the table and sing Mary Had a Little Lamb and other drinking songs. And, and my father got a little upset and uh, wrestled him to the ground and, and, uh, and uh, put his pajamas on him, you know, the kind with the feet and the trap door and everything in it. 
And, and he, he took them upstairs and put them in bed. And I went and got my pajamas on, and I went upstairs, and I got in bed. And, and, and he said to us, he said, don't say anything to your mother about this, and, and I'll take you to a movie Saturday. And, well, I was a nice kid, and I was willing to go along. But Denny wasn't hearing it. He was singing and carrying on and everything. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. He, he stood up in his little crib, and he urinated on the floor. <laughs> And I was laying over in my little bed watching this, and, and, and I remember the thought. I remember like it was yesterday. I was laying there, and I said, you know, there's a kid who's powerless over alcohol and whose life has become unmanageable. And, uh, and that's a, it's the saddest thing, you know. Denny Den went on, and he grew up to become a social drinker. It's, a, it's the saddest thing I ever saw in my life. Uh, you know, he had it in the palm of his hand, and, and he let it slip through. Uh, he just turned out to be average. Uh, no, he, he did stupid things, like uh, he went to one college. Uh, he had one major. And he went to one graduate school. He graduated on time. He showed up for the graduation. And he went to work for one company 20 years ago, and he's or 19 years ago, and he's just gone up through the ranks, and he's an officer now with this huge international corporation. And the most disgusting thing of all, he married one woman. I, I just never understood it. And here's a guy who had the world in the palm of his hand. And he let it go. So I went on to hold up the tradition, uh, the family tradition. I, I uh, you know, I... I was thinking not long ago uh, what it was that sort of or characterized my childhood. Now, I remember very clearly that, that most of all it was terror. Um, other, I know now that other people used to go to sleep and dream, and I used to just go to sleep and lay awake and practice terror. Uh, I was just afraid all the time. I don't know why. I, I uh, never understood why. I, I had something lived under my bed. That might have had something to do with it. Uh, I, I don't know if you had one of them or not, but if, if you lay there at night and you press your ear against the mattress, you could hear it moving around down there. And if you hung your feet over the side of the bed, it'd grab you and jerk you under there. And, and, uh, and you'd never be heard from again. And, and I knew that was true because I'd never met a little kid who ever came back. And uh, and I used to lay there in the center of the bed and just concentrate on being real skinny because that thing could could reach up on the side of the bed and and get you. And uh, if you don't believe that, uh, tomorrow morning uh, look at the sheets and you'll see those lines where it reached up there and uh, it almost got you. Uh, in the daytime, it lives in a closet. Uh, so I, I, when I was a little kid, I used to get my clothes out at night, and uh, my parents never understood why things never matched. Well, you know, in the dark, when you can go in the closet because it's under the bed, you you, you, you don't know what what matches or what doesn't match. And then once you go to bed at night and it gets dark, you stay there. Uh, you know, you got to make some real hard decisions as a little kid. You know, do I wet the bed or do I take a chance on that thing get me? Uh, and, you know, and I, I was pretty worried before I ever got started. And, um, and then i I uh, always been very small. Um, I used to tell people I've been, I used to be big and I've been sick, but that's a lie. I, I was never very tall. And, 
and, and that's not easy. Until uh, I, I sober for a little while, and I, I met another guy who wasn't very tall, and uh, and I told him, I said, you know, I've always had this complex about being short, and he said, uh, oh, don't. He said, you're not short. He said, all the rest of them are mutants. And, and I said, okay, and so that's the way I choose to look at it now, but, but I didn't know that when I was a kid. And, and, you know, I used to keep all this stuff to myself. Uh, I used to keep it a secret. I don't know why. Uh, I think it's because you look like you knew what was going on. I, I felt like, like one day God set everybody down in a big room, and he talked to all of you, and he said, I want to tell you what it's like. He said, I'll tell you what it's like to be a man, tell you what it's like to be a woman, I'll tell you what it's like to fall in love. And, and, and he explained everything to everybody, and I was in the bathroom. And... So everybody else in the world knew what was going on, and I didn't. And I thought my job was to fake it, just to go through life acting like I understood. So when I was a kid and the guys would say, hey, you know about girls? I'd say, yeah, I know about girls. And I'd think to myself, I wonder what they mean, do I know about girls? Because I knew I didn't know. And uh, aside from that, I think that's pretty normal. Um, I I remember I I went to a Catholic school for, well, 16 years, actually, but... uh, but, you know, I went and I was afraid to ask questions because uh, I thought I was supposed to know the answers. I don't know if, if we have any any uh, Catholics here. I, I, I've been told a few drink. And, uh, and, and we had something we called uh, the Holy Childhood. And that was uh, uh, where you'd, the, the nuns would extort money from you and, uh, and they'd send it off to the missions. And... Uh, and what they said was, if you, if you accumulated five bucks, you could buy a pagan baby. Now, now I, I don't, my mother was bringing babies home at uh, a, a pretty good rate herself. And, uh, and uh, I, I didn't know, I, you know, I'd taken a couple of dogs and cats home, and my mother had, uh, and father got a little upset about that, and... And I couldn't imagine what they were going to do if I brought a pagan home. Um, and I didn't know what one looked like, but, but uh, and I wasn't asking anybody, but, but I got up to $4.99, and it was $5 to get one of these pagan babies. And uh, I got up to $4.99, and I wouldn't give them the other penny, because I wanted to wait for Mary Beth to get her uh, $5, and she got her $5, and she got a little reward for being the first one. And so I waited a little while, and, and about a week later, I asked her, I said, what did it look like? And she said, what? I said, the, the pagan. And she said, well, I don't know. It, it, it lives in India. And I said, you mean you don't have to take it home? And she said, no. So I gave him the other penny then. Uh, but I was just afraid to ask. Uh, that's the way it was. And, and aside from being scared all the time, I had a pretty normal childhood. Um, and one day, I was 17 years old, and I uh, graduated from high school. And I was over in Wheeling, West Virginia, and I went by the post office, and they had some signs there, and, uh, and I decided that I probably should join the service. I thought I was supposed to know what I wanted to do when I grew up, and I didn't, and I didn't want to be around if anybody asked. And so I, I went in, and I didn't know what branch I was going to join, and I didn't ask anybody, but, but uh, somebody had said one time that, that the Air Force was like a country club. Now, I'd never been to a country club, but I had heard they were nice. So I went in to join the Air Force, and uh, the guy was out to lunch. So I thought for a little while, and, and I, I knew I'd never been any further than about 100 miles from home. I went to Cleveland once, but the game was rained out. And uh, so I figured, well, I'll, I'll join the Navy because I could travel, and, and he was out to lunch. 
And, uh, and I remember they used to advertise, in the Army, you could pick whatever school you wanted to go to. And I didn't know what school I wanted to go to, but I wanted to be able to pick it. And um, so I went to join the Army, and, uh, and he was out to lunch, so I became a Marine. Uh, seemed like a good way to do things, and... Uh, and I was ready. I mean, I was cut out to be a Marine. I was five feet one inches tall, and I weighed 113 pounds. And I was a born killer. That's what I was. Uh, and, uh, and I got on that bus, and uh, my mother was crying and uh, said, you know, we'll never see him again. And my father was laughing and said, they'll send him right back. And uh, so I went up to Pittsburgh, and... Uh, and I passed a physical, and, uh, and there were three other guys there who I'd never met before, and they were all from Pittsburgh, and, uh, and I didn't know what was going on. I mean, I was new in town, and, and, uh, and a man said, one of the guys said to me, he said, look, we're going to, we, we got eight hours till the train leaves, and, and we're going to go over and uh, uh, have a drink. Do you want to come with us? And I said, sure. And, you know, I'd never been out to have a drink anyplace, and... I followed him over there because I was afraid if I didn't go with him, I'd get lost and I'd never be found again. And so I went with him, and, and we went over to a bar. I don't know if you've ever been in a bar in Pittsburgh, but I'm telling you, man, that's, a, that's something to behold, especially when you're a little kid like I was. And, and I went in there, and this place was filled, I mean, filled with real men. You know, the kind, big guys with tattoos, you know, spit on the floor. Uh, and every one of them had a real woman with them. Um, <laughs> A real woman's the kind of woman that hangs around real men. And uh, guys like me get what's left. And, uh, and uh, the, uh, the uh, bartender came over and said in a very gruff voice, uh, what do you want? And I was terrified. I'd never been asked a question like that before. And uh, I didn't know what to say, so I watched the other guys, and, and they all asked for a beer, so I did too. And... And so I had my first beer, and then he came back, and, and I had my second beer. And then he came back, and, and I had my third beer. And, and somewhere between that second and third beer, something took place in my life, which I will never forget as long as I live. And one of the reasons I continue to go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous is so that I don't forget what happened. Because I'll tell you, I stood up, and I never experienced anything like in my life. I looked down, and the floor was six feet, four inches below me. And I looked out to my right, and my right shoulder was out to here, and my left shoulder was out to here, and the muscles were rippling through my body. It was magnificent. But most importantly, more importantly than anything else, my mind was as clear as a bell. I remember thinking, aha, now I understand the big picture. All my life it had been, it had been muddled and fearful, and, and I just didn't know anything, and I wasn't sure of anything, and now all of a sudden I knew. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. And I, I, I stepped back and I stumbled. And a guy said, what's the matter? I said, I think I just tripped over an invisible line. And I think that minute I became an alcoholic. I truly believe that. Uh, and, and the reason I believe that is because alcohol caused me to have a spiritual experience like I never experienced before. I didn't know I didn't fit in until that moment. And that moment told me that those 17 years I had not fit in. And I remember looking around that place. It was incredible. The place was filled, filled with these pathetic little men. <laughs> and every one of them had a woman with them was looking at me with hungry eyes. And, 
they're saying, I'd give anything to have a man like that. And, and, and you know, and I, I, for the first time in my life, I knew true compassion. I, I went around that place from table to table, and they were buying me drinks just to spend some time with me. And, and, uh, and I knew there was so much they wanted to learn, and my time was limited. But I went from table to table, and I shared as much as I had with them. And, and then it was time to get on the bus or in, in a cab, and, and then we went off to the train. And, and that night I experienced my first blackout. Uh, I went to bed for the first time since I was about five years old and, uh, and got up the next morning, and I was in Washington, D.C., and I was 300 miles from home, and that's three times as far as I'd ever been. And I was little, and I was terrified. And I was standing in Union Station in Washington, D.C., and the guy said to me, uh, let's go have a drink. And I was afraid not to because I thought I'd get lost and nobody would ever find me again. And I went over to the Monocle, and, and we had a, about three drinks, and the same thing happened to me. And I got back on that train, and I knew this Paris Island was going to be a piece of cake. And I knew growing up was going to be easy, and, and I knew that the world was mine. And that night I fell off the train in a place called Yamasee, South Carolina, and a very rude man was screaming at everybody. And they called him a drill instructor. And I, I remember I got up and brushed myself off and, and tried to explain to this man, this very limited man, that, uh, that he'd probably do a whole lot better if he treated people nice. And, uh, and uh, thus began my career in the Marine Corps. I, uh, I, I must say, uh, it really was a good four years. It, it really was. I did very well. I, I loved the, the Marine Corps. And after the nuns, it was easy. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, I, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, and I, and I wanted to make a career out of the Marine Corps. And um, and I got out. And the reason I got out was I came to realize that it was an abnormal way to live, and it made me drink kind of funny. And so I got out of there, and I went to work in a steel mill, and that was an abnormal way to live, and it made me drink funny. And, and, I, and I drifted up to Baltimore, and I, 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 I lived in a Jesuit theologian and was tutored. It was a very strange sort of a, and, and a wonderful kind of experience. I, I uh, uh, got to spend a lot of time with these wonderful men, and uh, I worked in a laboratory up there, and they, they let me live there. And, and, gee, I learned a lot, and I met a lot of nice people, but... But I was very, very sick, and none of it made much sense to me then. But it wasn't until I got sober that I looked back and, and I realized how truly blessed I am. Uh, I've been blessed my whole life. Uh, you know, one of the things this program has given me is, is the knowledge that I've been wrong about so many things. Um, you know, when I was at the end of my drinking and I was as sick as I was to ever get, uh, I remember thinking back on my life and, and how unfair it all was, how... Uh, how I'd been used and abused and uh, how I grew up in poverty and uh, on and on. Do you know the kind of poverty I grew up in? I had a mother and a father and nine brothers and, or, yeah, nine brothers and sisters. And every day that I ever lived, my mother hugged me and kissed me and told me she loved me. My father worked hard in a factory and would come home from work. And every day that we would spend time with him, he'd spend time with us. You know, I had to come to Alcoholics Anonymous to know how precious they were. You know what I'd have told you? I would have told you that I was deprived because I never remember my father ever telling me that he loved me. What a self-centered so-and-so. You know, unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. And it wasn't until the eighth and ninth step that I came to know 
what a privilege it was to grow up with two people like this who just loved, just loved. And you know what I do with them now? I honor them. That isn't original. But that's what I do. I honor them. Uh, I no longer, my father's 75 years old, and I no longer have to correct him. I just don't have to do it anymore. And he'll say something, and if I don't agree with it, I don't have to tell him he's wrong. All I have to do is say something like, you know, Dad, I never looked at it that way before. And I honor him. And, you know, my mother sits down and goes through those countless stories of what it was like when I was little. You know that? And anybody that I drag into the house, she'll tell them. Uh, and, 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 you know, and I no longer have to say, don't do that anymore. I just sit there and I listen to her and I love her and I honor her. There was a little house at Carolina Beach in North Carolina that, uh, that, that I bought some years ago. And, uh, and my parents moved down there in 1983 to keep an eye on it for me. And they're still keeping an eye on it. And if you're ever down there, it's on Carolina Avenue, right on the ocean. And there's a little sign on the side of the house that says, CZ does it. And uh, stop by and say hello to my mother and father and tell them you're friends of mine. And she'll sit down and get after pictures and tell you all about how it was. <laughs> She really will. And, uh, and you know, my job is to honor them. And I know if I honor them, I'll have a long life. You know, I had a brother, Denny, the one who, uh, who never learned to drink very well. And, um, and I would have told you, and I told everybody, just how unfair it was. Because, you know, he went on to college and then went on to graduate school and did all these things. And, 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 and he intimidated me because he was such a successful man. And so, you know, any time his name would come up, I wouldn't say anything overtly bad about him. I mean, I'm an alcoholic. I'm too smooth for that. But you know what I'd do is I'd poison the atmosphere, you know? I'd say, you know, it's too bad about Denny, and I'd drop some little thing, you know, that would just sort of give you a bad taste about him, you know? I was sober about six years, and, and I had this eight-step list, and I put his name on it and I began to pray about it and, and you know and I came to know why I owed him an amends and I, uh, I owed him an amends because I admired him I admired him, admired him so much it frightened me and I got in a car I was living in, uh, in uh, Washington D.C. at the time and I, I got in a car and I drove to New Jersey where he was then living he now lives near Detroit and I drove up to, uh, to New Jersey and I and I and I, I, I told him, I said, Denny, I've come to talk to you about something. And, and I said, I've come to make amends to you. And I began to tell him why. I said, you know, I've admired you so much that, that you intimidate me. And so I've said some things about you that aren't true. And what I've done is for the last six months, every chance I've gotten, I've said something positive about you that's true. And I'm going to go on doing that. And that's how I plan to make amends to you. And he started to laugh, and he said, you know, if, uh, if that's so, he said, then I owe you an amends too. Because uh, he said, uh, I've always admired you. He said, you know, he said, you never ever gave a shit about anything. <laughs> and he said, I've, I've always been afraid. He said, uh, he said, I've been so afraid that I was afraid to change majors, and I was afraid to change colleges, and... Uh, and I've been afraid to change jobs. And he said, you've never been afraid of anything. And you've run all over the world. And he said, you've been in more schools than anybody I know. And, uh, um, and, uh, and I came to realize that, uh, 
that that we're both human beings and and that that he's cut one way and I'm cut another way and and how wonderful it is to have a brother like that and we spend a lot of time together now we meet in different places we both travel some and we meet in different places and we play golf in different places and we have dinner and we have a good time and he's a very conservative guy so I always get his point of view and and I'm not quite so conservative so he always gets my point of view and and uh, it's wonderful and we love one another and I owe it all to the fact that I was wrong about my brother I was wrong about my parents I was wrong about God I was wrong about those nuns that uh, that taught me I'll never forget it as long as I live I, I used to say I was educated by the Sisters of the Iron Glove of Nazareth, Kentucky and uh, and uh, when I was, I was up there talking to my brother Denny and I'm so embarrassed by this now I said to him I said uh, well, how about the sisters he said yeah he said, weren't they wonderful and I said, you, you, you didn't go to the same school I went to. He said, of course I did. He said, you know, there's wonderful people dedicated their lives to try to educate ingrates like us. And I said, well, you know, I've never really looked at it that way before, Denny. And, um, and, uh, and, and not long ago, I was driving. I drive from, from Fayetteville over to Pinehurst, North Carolina, every Tuesday. I go over to a hospital to see people and. Uh, and I was driving across to the uh, army base there, the reserve, and it's a nice, pleasant drive through the country. And I was thinking about a, a little nun who, uh, who uh, ran a library in the high school I went to. And, and I spent a lot of time in that high school. They, uh, we used to do our detention there. And uh, I was a troubled child. And they used to put Sister Victoria was her name. And Sister Victoria used to put me behind a magazine rack. She'd say, you're a lovely creature of God. But you're also, uh, uh, you, you may contaminate others. And, and she put me back there, and, and I had to make rosary beads. If, if you don't know what those are, those are things that, that, uh, that, that we Catholics pray on. And uh, there were five decades, groups of ten beads. And I used to make them. They'd give me, she'd give me pliers and wire and all these beads, and I'd make them. And, um, and I was going to show her, so I made them with 11 beads. On, on each one, and I made hundreds of those in my four-year career at St. John's Central High School, and uh, and uh, she never said a word to me. And at the very end, I couldn't stand it anymore, so I had to let her know how creative I'd been. And 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 so I said to her, I said, you know, sister, uh, all these years. Uh, you know, I've been making rosaries. She started laughing. She said, I know you have. She said, you sly kid, you. She said, you know something? She said, I know you've been putting 11 beads in those things. And she said, you're so smart. She said, I know why you're doing that. You're doing that. So all over the world, in India and China and the Philippines and all the missions all over the world, people were praying extra prayers. And, and she said, God is going to account those for you. And I remember she sat down. She's such a beautiful woman, and she and on her beads, she, they wore large beads, and and on her beads she had a medal, and she said, "I put this medal on here especially for you, and every time I come to this, I offer a prayer especially for you." She said, "God has things to do with you, and He's going to use your creativity to serve Him." And on my rosary beads. I have a little medal, and every time I get to that, I think of her and I pray for her, because God had things for her to do, 
And he gave her that kind of creative love that would cut through all the fear and the anguish and the hurting that I was doing long before I ever took a drink. And, and so I'm so glad that I was wrong about Sister Victoria. Now, the greatest privilege that I've ever had is the privilege of being wrong. Because if I'd have been right, we'd have all been in a lot of trouble. <laughs> you know, when I was, uh, I was 29 years of age, and, and, and I'd been married, and I had two little girls, and, and my alcoholism had progressed to the point where it wasn't safe for me to be in the same house as, as, as my wife and my children, and, and she asked me to leave. And I went off, and I was living in a dive in uh, the ghetto of Washington, D.C., and uh, the phoniness and the fear and everything that was there. I, I used to go up to, uh, uh, I was out at the gift shop here, and, and I noticed that they, you know, they sell booze and everything, and, uh, and how nice it is not to have to go in there and buy that. And, and I, and, and I used to, to get up, and, and it took everything I had. And as I listened to Kay and Casey talk, I, I know exactly how they felt. I, I would go up to, to a liquor store in, on Columbia Road in Washington, D.C., and they had this big barrel filled with bottles, and there were three-fifths for $10. And, and I remember it would take me an hour to get ready to go up there, and I'd, I'd put on the cleanest shirt I had and everything, and I might put on an ascot or a necktie, and I'd put on a jacket, and I'd go up there, and I'd stand there. And I'd, you know how you'd have to pull, took everything you had. To, the inside was still shaking, but the outside wasn't. And, and, and I'd look in that barrel, and I'd shop in that barrel, and I'd be, pick up this one and hold it up to the light and everything. And I remember I turned to the man behind the counter, and I said, Excuse me, sir, is this a pretty good vodka? And he said, What the hell do you care? I'll get you where you need to go. And... Um, I remember saying to another guy in there who was also shopping in a barrel, I said, the gentleman must have had a bad day today. I, I hope things get better for him. And, uh, and, and that's how I lived. You know, I, I drank in a zoo. I don't know if you have any zoo drinkers here, but, uh, but, but I drank in a zoo. Uh, I, I lived just up the street from the National Zoo, and I, I used to get a Tupperware glass. Uh, it's a 20-ounce glass, and I'd fill it up with whatever I had. And I'd put an ice cube in it so I wouldn't be an alcoholic. Uh, somewhere I figured alcoholics didn't use ice cubes. And I, I went out and put the lid on the top of this thing and I'd burp it. And, and, and away I'd go up to the zoo. And I used to, used to go in the ape house. And um, they had bleachers in the ape house. And, uh, and I used to go back up in the corner and they never bothered me. They, they didn't say anything to me. The keeper was there and he'd see me come in. He'd look the other way and I'd go up and sit up in the bleachers and directly across from where I uh, used to sit there was an orangutan. Um, I don't know if uh, you know anything about apes, but uh, but orangutans are pretty personable and uh, I was kind of lonely and, uh, and you know, you go to a place for a little while, you start making eye contact you know, and uh, and uh, you know, and after a while, uh, I'd come in and this orangutan get kind of excited, jump up and down, you know, real long red hair and everything. And uh, um, so I'd sit there and, and we'd laugh at the people who came in and, and, and out. And uh, and somebody asked me if it was male or female. It's hard to tell with an orangutan, uh, but it didn't matter because I was impotent by this time anyway. So. But, uh, one day, uh, the orangutan looked at me in what I perceived to be utter disgust, and, and uh, 
walked to the back of the cage, and I, I began to curse the orangutan, and they, they threw me out of the ape house. And uh, kind of considered at the end of my social drinking. Because uh, from then on, I went home and just drank around the clock. And, uh, and uh, one day, I, I woke up. And I, I know some of you know this feeling. I woke up and it was over. Uh, I knew I could not go on living. I had a, a three- and a four-year-old daughter that uh, I couldn't see. Uh, I, had, I had a job, but I hadn't shown up there for a while. And they were kind of counting the days until, until it was over and they could give me my papers. Uh, I had a boss I worked for. who was a wonderful man who loved me and didn't understand what was wrong with me. Um, I had half a degree. I... I uh, dropped out of school because uh, of what I called emotional problems. Um, and my life was over, and I was 29 years old, and, and I went into the bathroom of this dive I was living in. It was in a basement of a house. It was so dark, even mold wouldn't grow in there. I'm telling you, it's just perfect for an end, end-stage alcoholic. And I went in there, and, and, and I had enough pills to kill half of Washington, D.C. I, I worked in hospitals. I directed a genetics laboratory and, and worked in hospitals, and they used to... The docs would notice I had this nervous condition, and they knew it was because I was married to this crazy woman. And uh, so they'd give me pills, and uh, they frightened me, thank God. And, and so I never took any. I had a whole medicine cabinet full. I'm the last of the old thoroughbreds, you know that? Uh, and, and I went into that bathroom, and, and my one plan was just to never come out. Now, I didn't have enough courage to say I was going to kill myself. But what I said was, I'll never come out of here. Now, I don't know what I expected to happen in there. But, uh, but I either began to take those pills or uh, I didn't. I don't know to this day. And it was like uh, something shot through my mind. And it was, I know now it was directly from God. It was a God that I'd given up on. And uh, I, uh, I had a piece of information that wasn't there before. And, and I uh, remembered a phone number my ex-wife had given me. And I didn't know what it was for or what it was to or anything, but I ran out and grabbed that number and I called, and it turned out to be a treatment center. And it was the only one in the Washington, D.C. area uh, where they would treat me for what was wrong with me. Uh, they wouldn't treat me for my suicidal ideation, and they wouldn't treat me for my depression, and they treated me for my alcoholism. And these people didn't say I was too young or anything. And... Uh, and, and I remember calling that number, and a lady with a British accent, her name was Dorothy, answered the phone. And, and uh, we talked for a couple of minutes, and she said, give me your phone number, I'll call you back. And I hung up the phone, and I sat down on the floor, and I just began to sob. And I sobbed just like a baby. And the phone rang again, and she said, it's Monday, and we can take you Wednesday. And I said, I'll be there. And I hung up the phone, and I looked, and there was a fifth of scotch left on a draining board. And God gave me what I believe was the first of his many great gifts to me. I knew that if I took one more drink of alcohol, that I was going to die. And I knew that knowing that would never keep me from taking it. And I didn't know what that was, but it was I knew it more certainly than I knew anything. And I got up and I ran over and I began to pour it out and I knew I wouldn't pour it out. And I threw it in the sink and it broke. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean this sincerely. If the bottle had bounced, I don't know that I'd be here. Because I knew that day that if I took one more drink, I'd die. And knowing that would never, ever keep me from taking it. 
And from that day till this one, by the grace of God and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and thousands of people like you all over the world, I haven't had to take that drink one day at a time. But you know something? I know that what was true then is true now. If I take one drink of alcohol, I'm going to die. And knowing that will never, ever keep me from taking it. And I know something else, too. I know I have a disease called alcoholism. And what that disease is, that it's a guarantee that I must drink. Out in front of me, the drink that's important to me isn't the one on May the 13th, 1973, that I don't even remember. I took it sometime in a blackout. That's not the drink that's important to me. The drink that's important to me is the one that's out in front of me. And I have a disease that says I will take it unless a day at a time I'm granted a reprieve based upon my spiritual condition. A day at a time you and I can push my drink out ahead of me. And you know, if I stop coming to you and I stop trying to live the life you've taught me to live these last 15 years, it may not be this month or next month, it may not even be this year, but one day I'll catch up to that drink and I'll take it. You know why I know that? Because I've seen hundreds and hundreds of people do it. I've got a disease that says I will drink again. And one day, I, my goal is to live to be 101. I, I, I want to live to be 100, and I'm really going to clean it up. And I'm going to spend one real clean year. And, um, I mean, I'm not even going to think of stuff that used to get me time in purgatory. I'm not even going to think about it. Okay? And, uh, and then I'm going to die, and about a year later, there'll be a drink there. And somebody will say, whose drink is this? And they'll say, that's Keith, but he died. And that's what I want to have happen. And I can do that with you. And as long as I live, if I stay with you, and I continue to work the steps of this program, one day at a time, I can push that drink out ahead of me. But you know, it's true for me today that if I take one drink, I'm going to die. And if you're new and you haven't taken a drink, you don't have to. You know, another old idea I had was that everybody slipped. It seemed to me everybody I heard slipped. And this is serious, because if I do, I'm going to die. And, and I, I was going to tell my sponsor about it, but I didn't want him to think ill of me. Um, and, uh, but one day, you know, we used to answer the, the, uh, the phones at the AA desk in Washington, D.C. And, and one day we're, we're up there. We used to work from Monday, Monday from 7 until 10 at night. And uh, I told him I didn't know if I could make it. My social calendar was kind of full, but he told me to be there anyway. And, uh, and one day I said to him, I said... Uh, Dan, uh, his name was Dan C. I said, Dan, um, when did you have your slip? And he said, well, I've never had a slip. And I said, oh, my God, you mean you have to drink too? And he said, no, I don't have to drink. If I don't drink today, I never have to drink again. And it was the first time that I thought that there were people in this program who didn't slip. I just thought there were. And if you're new, let me tell you, you don't have to do it. A day at a time. Hang with winners. He told me that. He told me that night. He said, you know, he said, I've noticed it. You're kind of hanging around with losers. Well, I was a little upset by this, you know. You know, the kind of, the ones who get off in a corner and, and, and have a juicy piece of information about everybody, you know. You know, the negative guys, you know, you're all together and everything. Uh, they'll tell you they don't want you to have any fun. They'll, they'll tell you that... Uh, 
that you have no he in and she in, and, and that's because most of them are old and, and they forgot all about sex and uh, and uh, on and on. I was hanging around with these guys because they seem to make sense to me. And um, and he said, I don't want you hanging with losers. And boy, was I indignant. I said, how will I know the winners? And he said, oh, it's easy. He said, you won't like them. <laughs> He said, I want you to hang with people you don't like. He said, if you like them, stay away from them. They're not for you. And that was one of the... It, it reminds me of my daughter, Kimberly. She figured this out when she was four years old. We were out one time, and, uh, and uh, I was uh, newly sober, and I could see them and spend time with them. And, uh, and one day we were out, and she's eating this chocolate sundae. And I'll never forget it. She's a, she was a beautiful little child. Now she's a beautiful... Uh, young lady, but she was a beautiful little child, and she had chocolate all over her face. Only a kid can do that. You know, they get it everywhere. And she said, Dad, this, this must be bad because it's good. So she had it figured out a long time ago. Um, she, she helped me so much, too. I like to talk a little bit about them because a lot of people in our fellowship uh, feel real guilty about their children, and I was one of those. I, I just felt horribly guilty. Uh, terribly, terribly guilty about my children. I knew that I had ruined them, and I'd done this, and I'd done that. And uh, and and I think the closest I came to getting drunk, my first year of sobriety, was about the children. And of course, I got to the right meeting because I was going to at least one every day, and heard the right woman talk about children, which uh, saved my life. But uh, but uh, I remember one day we're driving down the Rock Creek Parkway through through Washington, D.C., and it's a beautiful place, and it was in the springtime, and I saw over a little less than a year, and the uh, blossoms were out, and uh, Washington's such a beautiful city, and there were people in front of me that were going real slow, looking at these stupid trees and things, and and, uh, and I'd get behind one, and they were doing 20 miles an hour, and I'd get behind the other one, and they were doing 20 miles an hour, and finally, I said to the guy riding in, in the front seat with me, I said, I wish that woman would move over. And this little voice from the back seat said, Daddy, she probably doesn't know who you are. This kid has always been there to help me over the rough spots. And uh, and you know what's nice? This August... uh, uh, she and, and I hope my other daughter, Kelly, who's up at Duquesne University now, we're going to go to Colorado to an AA function. It's a week long uh, up in the mountains, and uh, we're going to spend a whole week together. And, uh, and, and she said, Daddy, can I go away with you on one of your trips? Because I want to get to know you better. Isn't that nice? And my daughter, who should be grateful that her dad is dead, is grateful that he's alive and sober. Isn't that something? What a gift. I'm so glad I was wrong. And you know that woman that, that went through such terror with me for those four years that we were married and who, who had to ask me to leave to not only save herself but save the little kids because of my insanity, my utter insanity, uh, remarried. Did much better the second time. And, uh, and married this really neat guy called my husband-in-law. Uh, and you know, I was uh, I was far 
far too immature to raise these children, and God saw fit to put a man in their life who could raise them, and who was mature and responsible, and, and who was with them when they grew up. And I couldn't be. And gee, God worked it out well. Now I get to know them as adults. What a privilege. What an absolute privilege. You know, I'd never written it this way. Because I was wrong. I was wrong. You know, when I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous, there weren't a whole lot. I was in my 20s, and there were not a whole lot of people in my area who were, who were much younger than that. I was, I, I, the, the people up in the, uh, the young people's lounge, if you haven't been up to the hospitality suite, go up. I, I stopped in a couple of times. I only had a few minutes each time, but it's such a privilege to, to be around these young people. They, they know so much of the spirit of this program and, and so much about love that I always try to get around the, the, uh, the young people's lounge because, uh, because they teach me how to grow up. And, uh, and they were talking. And, and if you haven't been there, go there and just sort of sit and listen because they give me a whole new appreciation. Uh, those years that they're living, I was drunk. And it's such a privilege to go back and try to learn what I, I hadn't known. And I was a member of the Young People's Group in Washington, D.C., and, and, uh, and uh, like I said, I was 29 or 30 years old at the time, and, and there were only a few people younger than me, and five years later, there were numerous people in their teens and early 20s. And you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is so much richer because all the young people are in it. It's just so much richer. I'm just really thrilled by it. I, I moved to, to Fayetteville, North Carolina in 1980 and there were no young people around and now the place is crawling with them. And, and you know, with that vitality and that, that spirit and that happiness and that joy that's there, uh, it's, it's just really great to watch. You know, when I started out, I was still this terrified, private uh, guy who thought he had to have answers and, uh, and, I, and I always ran into the right people. It was amazing to me. You know, an old idea I had, and I don't know if any, I doubt if anybody else ever had this old idea, but an old idea I had was that for every, I think I might have picked it up in a treatment center or someplace, I don't know, but the idea was that for every problem, there's one answer. And if I discover the problem, I've got so much time to discover the answer. If I don't discover the answer, I don't know, I'd have anywhere from 12 to 48 hours, depending on the problem. And if I didn't get the right answer, a big hand would come down and pour a drink in my mouth. Now, I don't know why, I, that's, that was my idea. And so whenever I would get, come up with a problem, I'd run off to one of the old timers. I remember Don Kane, who's, who's dead now, but, but I used to go to Don a lot. And Don always puffed on his cigar. He's a retired general, he's a beautiful man. And I'd tell Don my problem, and he'd give me the answer. And I said, well, thank you, because that means I don't have to drink. And, uh, and one day I went to him, and I had this problem. And he said, uh, you know, Keith, he said, I don't know the answer to that. And I said, Don, I said, this is pretty serious. Uh, are you sure you don't know the answer? He said, no. Now, you know, for each problem, there's only one answer. He said, but I know a man at the Metropolis Club in downtown D.C. who might know the answer to that. So I got his name, and I headed off to the Metropolis Club. And, I, and it was in a condemned building down by the Trailways bus station at that time. And I went in, and I asked for this guy, and he's out on a 12-step call. 
And I said, you know, is, you know where he is. I, I really need to talk to him. And the lady said, well, he'll be back. We're going to have a meeting. He'll be back. So I sat there and I looked. I got about an hour and 20 minutes to live. And, um, and then he comes and he's dragging a drunk in. And I ran over to him and I said, I got to talk to you. He said, well, we're going to start the meeting. Can we talk after the meeting? I said, I don't think I'll be alive at the end of the meeting. He said, you'll be alive. Don't worry. And he said, here, you sit here. So he sat beside me and, uh, and had this meeting. I didn't hear a thing the whole meeting. I was just watching the clock. And uh, when the meeting was over, we went over and sat down, and I told this guy my problem. And he looked at me. He's a beautiful guy. He's a black guy with, with white hair. And, and he looked at me, and he had these beautiful eyes. And he looked at me, and he said, Son, he said, uh, he said, I don't know the answer. And I said, Oh, no. And he said, But, he said, Don't drink even if your ass falls off. <laughs> and I remember driving home thinking, that's the most profound thing I ever heard in my life. And I, I suddenly realized that this whole thing about AA, it isn't about finding answers. It's about finding solutions. And we find solutions because we don't drink. No matter what, we don't drink. There's no good reason to drink. And we stick around and we go to meetings and we, we watch how God works it out. What a wonderful way to live. You know, I couldn't sleep. I don't know if anybody ever had that trouble. But I couldn't sleep. And, and so I used to ride around D.C. in the middle of the night. I'd just ride around the monuments and things and look. And, and, and I'd talk to myself. It was the only way I could get a really interesting conversation. And it was about 3 o'clock one morning. I was riding around. And I went down by the Jefferson Memorial. And I knew all those sayings by heart that they have in all the monuments. But I went down to Jefferson Memorial. And I went out and laid down the grass and looked up at the stars. And I fell asleep. It's like a miracle. I remember I, I got up. I slept about an hour. I woke up. I got my car. I went up and I got my sleeping bag. And I drove back down. And I laid it out on the grass. And I lay down and I went to sleep. And... Uh, about two hours later, this guy's kicking me, and it's a park policeman. And he said, what are you doing here? And I said, I'll tell you what I'm doing here. And I told him my story. And he said, no kidding. And I said, this is the only place in the world I can sleep. <laughs> and he said, well, I understand that. He said, he said, I'll tell you what. He said, anytime you need to sleep, you come down here, and I'll tell the rest of the guys. And you just come down here and sleep. And, you know, I'd go down here and three days, you know, you go two, three days without sleeping. I'd think I was going to lose my mind. I'd take my sleeping bag and I'd go down there. I rolled out on the grass and I'd lay down. I was laying there one night and I, I heard, Hey, Keith, is that you? And I said, Yeah. And he said, He said, How many days? I said, 74 days. He said, Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? How's wrong about the police? He'd say, Want a cup of coffee? No, I think I better get some sleep. He'd say, you want us to wake you up? And I said, no, no, I'll probably wake up when the sun comes up. He said, okay, have a good night's sleep. He said, we'll keep an eye on you, don't worry. What's wrong about the police? What's wrong? You know, I went off to, a, to an AA meeting one time, and, and, uh, and, and this whole theme about being wrong such freedom and I, I'll go off to this AA meeting and, and I was talking about something I don't know it was a crisis at a month club I belonged to and um, this man said to me he said I want you to uh, so I want you to take 
get a tube of lipstick from one of the girls in the program. He said, I don't want you to do anything else with the girls in the program. I was infinite. What the hell was I going to do with the girls in the program? But he said, I want you to take this tube of lipstick and I want you to go home right on your mirror. Keith, you were wrong. And I said to him, I said, no, you don't understand. I'm, my problem is I have a poor self-image. Um, I said, that's my problem. I said, I don't think well of myself. I said, I have, to, I have to, 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 to find things to be positive about. And he said, borrow some lipstick, go home, right on the mirror, Keith, you're wrong. I didn't want to be holding anybody, particularly a female, so I went and bought a tube of lipstick. And I went home and I wrote on the mirror, Keith, you were wrong. And I knew the guy was crazy, but I did what I was told and I threw what was left of the lipstick away and I, I went off to sleep and I woke up the next morning. It was like every morning. You know, you wake up and sitting right next to my bed is depression. Jump on you, you know. <laughs> And uh, I'd get up and, and you know, and I'd, I'd go out in the kitchen and, and I felt terrible and I'd be talking to myself. Well, today you're going to go to work and today they're going to find out you don't know how to do your job. Uh, you're going to be alone the rest of your life. Uh, you're always going to be impotent, but that's all right. Uh, doesn't matter because no woman would have anything to do with you anyway. Uh, you know, the usual stuff. And... Uh, I remember I, I, I felt terrible. I started coffee and I walked in the bathroom and I looked on the mirror and said, Keith, you were wrong. I said, thank God. <laughs> you know, if I'm right, I'm in a lot of trouble. Uh, and you know, what a privilege it is to be wrong, to be wrong about everything. It's wonderful. Why did I fight so hard to be right? If I'd have been right, I was nothing. What a crazy way to live. You know, I was wrong about God, and I was wrong about religious people, and I was wrong about the church I was privileged to grow up in. I'm alive because of the values that was taught to me in this church. And I was one of those people early in AA who was religiously anti-religious. You know the kind? I went back to college, and I got a degree in philosophy and theology you know, so that I could argue with these God freaks. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful guy. What a sicko! Yeah, and uh, <laughs> you know, it's like like W. C. Fields was dying in a hospital, and somebody, you know, he's a notorious atheist, and somebody walked in and they caught him reading a Bible, and he tried to hide it under the covers, and they saw it, and they said, "Have you changed your mind?" He said, "No, I'm looking for loopholes." <laughs> and and that's why I went back and studied philosophy and theology, and uh, and uh, and you know. I put God on my A-step list. Now, that may seem uh, arrogant or silly to some of you, but, but I needed to do it because I had a real problem about God. And one day I put on a three-piece suit because you want to look good. And, and I went and I talked to God. I, I just went to a little chapel in the hospital and I just sat down and talked to him. And I got really honest. And I said, you know, I've been scared and, and I didn't think you were there and I thought I was too bad. And, and I just talked to him like I would to another friend or like I do to my sponsor, Tom. And uh, and I left there, and I knew that, that it was okay with me and God. I just knew it. I was close to Him. And, and I went down to a retreat house in Faulkner, Maryland, and, and I wanted to talk to a religious person because I wanted to make amends for the things I had said about him. And, and I walked around, and I was looking for the right person to talk to, and, and there was an old guy, a priest, who was in a room, in uh, this one room, and he was just sitting in there reading his breviary. And... Uh, and I went in and I said to him, I said, Father, you got a few minutes. And I looked and, and, and the man had uh, a lot of cancer. 
had eaten away part of his face. And, and I, I remembered hearing about Father Jim, and he was dying of cancer. And, and, and I sat down in a rocking chair across from him, and, and I began to tell him about the things I had said about people like him, and, and on and on. And, and when I was drunk and, and, and all those things that I said, and, and I said, I've come here to, to make amends to you for people like you. And I never forget it as long as I live. He, he, he began to cry. And he got up and he put his arms around me. And he began to pat me. And I began to cry. And he said, it isn't you who owe me an amends, son. It's I who owe you an amends. He said, too often in the 50 years I've tried to serve God. He said, I forgot what my higher power told me to do. He said, too often I stayed with the 99 that I've been comfortable with. And I didn't go after the one who was lost. And he said, I'm sorry you had to be out there all alone. And I, I came to realize that, that the ninth step heals everybody. It doesn't just heal us. It heals everybody. And I left that room knowing that I could be a religious person. You know, one day I was... Uh, I was uh, I had moved to Fayetteville, North Carolina, and I'm so privileged to be a citizen of a city, of a state, of this country, because I never felt like I belonged any place. And you know, I'm registered to vote, and I I own a little house on a golf course, and uh, and I just belong there because that's my home, and I live there a day at a time. And I'm so privileged to do that because I never thought I belonged any place. I remember my, my second sponsor when I lived in Washington was a guy named Sandy B. And, and Sandy used to say, I could be stranded on a corner in a strange town. And somebody would come up to me and say, excuse me, you're standing in my spot. And I'd move. And I knew exactly how he felt. But then all of a sudden I belonged. And one day I was sitting sitting on a balcony down in Fayetteville. Shortly after I'd moved there, I was l- looking at this lake and uh, watching the ducks swim around. And I was reading a big book, and the big, big book, which I've fallen in love with. And, uh, and I began to cry because I was so grateful for what God had given me. I remember saying to him, you know, why me? You know, why did you pick me to give these things to? Why did you pick me to know you? You know, I know nicer people than me who died of this disease. You know, why did you pick me to, to give my children back to Why'd you pick me to to give Alcoholics Anonymous to? Why me? And I was reminded of uh, when I was in that treatment center and I I called my estranged wife who was hurting so badly from from this disease. And and I said to her, I, I said, I'm an alcoholic. And she said, no, joke. And I said, but why me? And she said, why not you? If anybody deserves it, you do. And she hung up. And I was, um, I was sitting there thinking, why me? And why me? And, and God said to me, why not you, son? If anybody deserves it, you do. And I don't deserve it because I'm good. I deserve it because God chooses to give it to me. And I also know that he doesn't love me any more than the people who died of this disease. He just has things for me to do. That's all. This morning when I was praying, after I'd heard a wonderful talk that, that uh, KC gave, um, I was praying, and the words that just kept coming to my mind are, uh, your brother who was dead is now alive. And that's the way it is for me in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
I'm spiritually dead, and, and now I'm alive, and, and I owe it all to you. I'm so tremendously grateful that you would honor me by having me here. Um, I, I love you. Uh, I love you in a way that I never knew I could love. I love you because I am you. Thank you very much.